chief of Vanity Fair. The social energy of the 80s in New York was ferocious. When did I sleep? It turns out to have been an acid that I'm allergic to alcohol. Most of these accounts of dinner parties probably wouldn't have happened if I'd had a glass in my hand. By the time I became editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair in January 1984, Ronald Reagan was on a glide path to re-election. He had made an improbable journey from radio announcer to mid-level movie star to union leader to television host to two-term governor of California to president of the United States. Reagan's ascent to the White House marked the definitive end of one era, that of the turbulent 1960s and its threadbare 70s endgame, and the supersonic launch of another gilded age. Tax cuts for the wealthy in 1981 unleashed animal spirits on Wall Street. There were new buzzwords like junk bonds and arbitrage. Go-getters and suspenders, their eyes ablaze with the thrill of winning, thrived in an orgy of mergers and acquisitions. As Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan put it when asked to define the 80s, we borrowed a trillion dollars from the foreigners and used the money to throw a big party. The Reagan White House set the social pace of the most visible stratum of American high life. With her huge quaffed movie star head and tiny svelte body in ruby red Adolfo suits, Nancy Reagan was the reigning star of John Fairchild's 7th Avenue and Society Bible, W., the oversized fashion monthly that was sister of his powerful retail newspaper, Women's Wear Daily. The Reagans filled the East Room and the State Dining Room and the pages of W with A-listers, B-listers and Hollywood Square's C-listers. Nancy's devoted gay walkers, social escorts from the world of fashion and decorating, always stood ready to ditch their Bel Air and Park Avenue circles for the heady whirl of formal dinners and luncheons in the executive mansion. The American media world for which I was headed in the early 80s was enjoying an era of blockbuster confidence. The gatekeepers to what was not yet called content, the studio heads, network chiefs, major label music honchos, Hollywood agents, were stars themselves. In publishing, paying outlets for writers and photographers, cash cow newspaper chains, prosperous publishing houses, ad-stuffed magazines, were legion. There were 2,500 new magazines launched between 1979 and 1989. To be the editor of Time or Newsweek was to be a demigod. Meanwhile, pop culture was all about the shiny surface, high voltage, high volume. Even porn became high gloss. On television, Dynasty was big. Big hair, big money, big ratings. The slick-tire squealer Miami Vice, whose heroes drove Ferraris in sequences spliced with rock video montages and were unafraid to wear pastel tees with white linen suits, made its debut on September the 16th, 1984. Material Girl, the monster hit song in which Madonna celebrates affluence and scorns romance, came out a few months later. In the video, her hard-edged Marilyn Monroe impersonation has the unapologetic ersatz fabulousness that defined female glamour in the 80s. In New York, the decade's biggest signifier would turn out to be a building, not a person. Trump Tower, the very definition of ersatz with its fool's gold facade, its flashy internal waterfall, its dodgy financing. More broadly, these were the years when America began lurching towards serious economic inequality. Those big tax cuts for the rich, combined with big cuts in social spending, squeezed America's vaunted middle class at both ends. 
In the New York of 1984, it was either the sedan or the sidewalk. Martin Amos's Money was published in January 1984, and Jay McInerney's Bright Lights Big City in August. Both captured the mood. Doomy, self-destructive, even hopeless, but at the same time soaringly ambitious. The big artists were Keith Haring, Jean-Michel Basquiat, Kenny Scharf. Graffiti-making urchins who were plucked from the streets like fairy tale paupers and made princes of the galleries and salons. And as the sidewalks were filling with the homeless, the adjacent streets were filling with stretch limos, a moment that would be nicely captured, as so many were, by Oliver Stone's Wall Street, which came out in 1987, right after the October stock market crash of that year. Oscillating between these worlds, New York City often felt on the brink. My diaries are full of moments when the uneasy sense of precariousness intrudes. In April 1983...